Jason Bailey Losh, and you're listening to Seeing is Forgetting, conversations on contemporary art and culture in Los Angeles and beyond. Today's guest is Justine Kurland. She is a wonderful photographer who is known for her portraits and landscapes of sort of countercultures, runaway girls, hippie communes, freight trains and the hobos that sort of traverse the tracks. And she's taken all of these while crossing the country in her own van that was retrofitted for living in. She would often take her young son in the, in the road trips with her. At the beginning of the podcast, she wanted to read an essay that she is going to recite at the opening of a two-person show she's having here in town in King Griffin Corcoran. I should also say she shows at Mitchell and it's in Nashville, New York. And she's had multiple museum shows and international exhibitions. This essay and sort of the relevance of the, the conversation that we have is about this transition out of one mode of thinking and creating the work and into another. She's selling the van or she sold the van. And now she's not going to be doing the road trips to produce the work, but she's looking back at that and thinking about what it means. So it's a fantastic way to actually start this conversation. It's about 13 minutes long. And then we go into the, the question and answer. And we talk about everything from gender-based bias in the arts to teaching and then modes of contemporary photography and how the, the positives and negatives of the way we speak about art and photography. So take a listen. And here's Justine. So I'll just read it and not introduce yeah. it. Yeah, just tell me. Okay, it's called, the piece is called F-hole. Can I tell you what an F-hole is, though? I think I know, but yeah, go ahead. Do you know? It's a kind of a, a rare, uh, I mean, when I learned what it was. What no, it tell was, me. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> it's the it's the F-shaped, it's in a lot of violins and cellos, but it's the it's the incision this that is, helps the acoustics. This of, is absolutely not what I thought it was. Oh. I thought it was a fuckhole. Yeah, yeah, there's the fuckhole. That's why I used it. But it's it's about guitars, actually. No, I had no and idea. Classical guitars have an F-shaped incision that helps the acoustics, and they're decorative. So this is in reference to uh, your boyfriend who plays music. Wait, let me just read the piece. Okay, sorry, go ahead. Okay. Um, I want to tell you why I sold my van. It's not the first van I parted from, but it might be the last. I'd like to publicly renounce a belief system that no longer seems useful or true to me. The first van was our family car, by which I mean to say my mother's. She named it Ruby Blue. The exterior was tomato soup colored and the inside pink. My older sister was 15 at the time, which would make it 1980, and had kissed a man twice her age on a bed in the back. He owned the local bar. I remember my mother pulling him out of the van by his hair and my sister scampering away in embarrassment. Sometimes when I remember it, I'm the one on the bed with the bar owner. Perhaps he touches my face and tells me how beautiful I'll be when I grow up the kind of woman who will make men fall off their bicycles. He did actually say that to me once. But what I see now is the cartoonish way he was expelled by the, uh, from the van, headfirst by my mother's clenched fist. 
I don't think it's a stretch to say the van was a feminist space. The enclosure of a van is security to some and threatening to others. It's a space that seems to exist outside the law and convention. I took pride in its wildness and how feral I had become in it. I didn't need anybody or anything. In my van, I was self-sufficient. If I stayed with a friend, my van was my bed. I could leave at any time of night without waking anybody up. Driving means I'm simultaneously inside and outside. The interior driver is safely strapped into a private impenetrable bubble wall. The exterior driver navigates freely through the world, covers long distances, and stops to some, pump some gas. I like the smell of exhaust fumes and how my ass vibrates for a while after the motor's been cut. If I've been driving a long time, I turn off the radio so I can hear the engine. What I'm listening for are problems, a misfired piston or a metallic scrape. I think one day I'll die in an automobile accident. It will be raining and dark with low visibility. Construction on the road forces the four, lane of, four lanes of traffic to converge into two, and each oncoming car splashes another wave of dirty water against my windshield. Their headlights blind me, and we scream with our horns. I'm hit head on, but I don't try to swerve. Instead, I use my hands to protect my face. My father died in 2013, the week before my winter break from teaching. This is when I take my usual road trip to photograph. I decided to go anyway that year, leaving the preparations for my father's memorial to my sister. I stopped the car only to sleep or pee or write emails inviting people to the service. I don't think I took a single usable photograph. The van was a way to navigate through my grief. I imagined I was driving away from the pain, but in fact, it filled the four corners of my vehicle. I drove the long way to LA, through the south and against the Mexican border. I listened to the same CD in my car stereo on repeat for the entire month. It was in the player when I started the car and I never bothered to take it out. The CD was by a guitarist, someone I've had infrequent but periodic hookups with over the past 20 years. He'd given it to me four years earlier, the last time I'd seen him. He's something of a genius improviser in the way that he builds a melody and shatters it open. His music feels interior since it registers emotionally, but exterior because in order to structurally pull apart a song, there must be distance. A tune might turn itself inside out, negate itself, and devolve into atonality. Listening, I tumble into a lacuna that had once been a song. He plays solo guitar in the CD, which was especially affecting in my state of mind. Later, I learned to recognize particular strains in it from the music of his teacher, a Haitian classical composer who, among other things, mimicked the sound of voodoo drums with his guitar, a rumble of low chords oscillating back and forth, like jumping from your left foot to your right, the strings loose and dirty, as if toothless and drunk. Another technique has to do with repetition. The melody partially forgets itself, slips, and then grabs back a hold, often missing. It's an incredibly lonely thing to hear in a van. His guitar playing became my soundtrack driving west, and by the end of the trip, I was in love with him. I've been involved with him ever since. 
Until last month, he broke up with me again. I never felt comfortable photographing him, so I made pictures of his guitars. A guitar can stand in for a woman's curved form, or it can be phallic. Increasingly so, the lower it hangs on a torso. I wanted to unravel the myths that surround guitars, even if I only cared about the ones that belonged to my guitarist. I photographed his guitars in order to fix them in my own fantasy. It's necessary to traverse a fantasy rather than to go around it if you want to unfasten its hold on reality. By moving through it, it's possible to understand what it's made of. This isn't my idea, it's Zizek's or Lacan's or somebody's. Anyway, if you can bear to go the whole distance, you'll discover there's a void at the center, a huge abyss of nothingness, and that the journey is compelled by nothing more than cheap everyday props and disposable promises. It's a little like driving a car or soloing on guitar. Once it's over, it's hard to know why either of you bothered. Vans are hollow inside, and so are a lot of guitars. Volumes of empty space designed to amplify their use. I've had a few vans, but by the time I got this last one, I knew exactly how I wanted it. I designed the interior, especially for road trips. The bed doubled as a shelving unit for camera gear. It had a bookcase, a toy box, and hardwood floors. The man who built it built houses and used fancy scrap lumber, birch, and cherry. He also played the guitar. Thoreau's transcendental philosophy underlies much of my motivation for driving, even if I've only found his writings annoyingly self-righteous. Nevertheless, it's all there. My draw to natural settings, as if going deep enough into a forest means I can walk into a time before I existed. Isolation and self-reliance solving the messy problem of other people. The part that most deeply resonates with me is his cabin. When I drew up the plans for my van and outfitted fitted it with the things I would need, I felt complete in a way that's hard to quantify. Yes, I do happen to have a Phillips head screwdriver, a pea jar, a cast iron pan, James Agee's Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, tampons, the Randy McNally's Road Alice, peanut butter, and a memory foam mattress pad. But it's more than that more like the love a turtle has for the color rather than the usefulness of her shell. Maybe Thoreau is only a libertarian, claiming a freedom inside of the margins of his privileges. Haven't we all heard the story of how, during his two years at Walden, he would walk the four miles home every day for his mother's fresh-baked cookies? I want to think about Virginia Woolf's room of one's own as it differs from Thoreau's cabin. If a woman's role in society traditionally demands her subjugation, then wouldn't it be wise for her to withdraw? Wolf writes of the necessity of killing the angel of the house, which splits me in two when I see my 11-year-old's body, damp and limp, innocently tangled in his sheets. What about my own responsibility to stick around? After all, someone has to bake the cookies. After my father died, I walked through his house and photographed his things with my iPhone. I felt creepy doing it. Not that he would have minded, but sometimes what a photograph shows isn't nice. He lived in deprivation and poverty. An angry stoicism marked his house from a pair of orthopedic shoes duct taped together to a do not resuscitate order taped over my son's drawing of a train on the refrigerator aged by speckles of food. <laughs> 
I never used the photographs for anything or even showed them to my sisters. But I think taking them changed how I photograph. The guitarist left a guitar at my house so he'd have something to play on the rare occasions he came over. It was a beater that he couldn't bear to throw away because it was made by his teacher. The wood had lost its tension and the bridge kept popping off. I didn't break the guitar out of anger alone. My aggression was tentative, even self-conscious. I only cracked the face at first, careful to keep the body intact. As the weeks went by, I took more liberties, but cannibalizing the guitar was not some easy metaphor. I broke it into pieces because of a trajectory I had set into motion with my first photograph of the guitar's guitar. I photographed them to know what they were made of as physical objects in the world with a finite capacity for distress and a fixed point of dissolution. The guitar was now small enough to fit inside a tote bag. I brought it to a vacant lot to burn and remembered a story the guitarist had told me about his teacher. The teacher's name was Franz, and in the late 40s, Franz left Haiti to move to New York in order to pursue a career as a composer. He told his wife he wouldn't have children with her also because of his career. The story goes that while she slept, she crept into his room and tried to cut off his fingers with a pair of scissors. Franz managed to keep all his digits and later became the father of Haitian classical guitar. But I'm not thinking about him now. I'm thinking about her. I wonder if she was enraged when she held his hand in hers or merely being practical. In William Faulkner's A Light of Aug in August, Lena Gro Grove travels in pursuit of her baby's father. She continues her journey long after it's clear that no father will materialize. He's not the reason she goes, just her excuse for living on the road. My, my, a body does get around, she sighs over and over again. I'm shopping for another car now. A used economy compact, nothing to call a home, just a car like any other car. My van had become a container that not only shaped what was inside of it, but also what lay beyond. I sold it because it felt like a played-out story in which freedom had become synonymous with isolation. I need to travel, but there are a lot of different ways to go. Even though I've shed my cabin, I'm keeping the wheels. It's really beautiful. <laughs> um, it's long. I know it's long. It's not even that it's long. It's like, it's really personal. Um. Yeah, I mean, I feel like writing for me is a way of unpacking, you know? Have you always done it or not? More recently. I don't know you as a writer. I know you as a photographer. Yeah, yeah. No, the write, I'm not a writer. I'm not a writer. But I, I, um, I thought it was important to read that with the work that I was showing because um, I feel like I've had this really big shift. In what way? My work is about a kind of um, American identity um, that I've embraced and celebrated. I am. Do you feel like you're giving it up or not? Well, no. I feel like I feel like the work that I've made. It's not that it wasn't critical. It's not like I don't have a critical idea of what this kind of dream of the West is about. I mean, there is genocide of native americans built into it it is like it is a kind of colonialist spirit and it also is about this idea of um a kind of innocence of like heaven on earth which means if heaven is on earth then you know there's there's no there's no history it's just 
it's a, a Rousseau idea of like innocent until proven guilty that we're babes in the woods. You know, there's a kind of optimism and innocent that I is problematic at the at the very least of, of what how we're politically historically implicated in. But but all of that to the side. This is all like I'm just saying this as. knowing what that is there is still a way that when the wind is in my hair and i'm driving west that my it's amazing it's amazing that's beautiful it's like something like crazy you can't like put words to it no i i feel like i'm going home yeah i feel like it's a natural fit for you right it, it it has been and i guess the more that i think about what my impetus my motivation for driving west was it was this idea that the home that i was from or what yeah the home that i was from that i was escaping something just the same way that the first like pioneers were escaping a certain type of oppression that i was leaving like a very unhappy childhood and in like going out into this utopian expanse that like you know was endless well and anything could be discovered too you're you're finding these social structures that are sort of hidden or like you're going in depth into these sort of these people's lives that if you don't go out into the West and sort of explore and like find those things, it's hard to like see. Do do you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. I see it in like each different, the different iterations. Yeah. There everyone like is an exploration into these sort of social, these communities. Like, yeah, yeah. No, there it was yeah. I mean I was looking for some other other something outside of like what you knew. Well, I mean the first body of work was this idea of teenage runaways, these stage narratives of teenage runaways. And then I realized with those girls I was basically making commune pictures, like I was I was making a bunch of people in the woods, like homesteading, uh 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 are these the pregnancy ones? Or the- no, 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 my very first stage narratives gotcha. were, were these, like, they were almost like an after-school special of, like, groups of girls, like, camping out in the woods. And I was imagining it was a kind of Huckleberry Finn, like, Lord of the Flies type of <laughs> um, runaway adventure. I don't know if you know that work. Um, no, was, I remember. I know exactly I, what you're talking I about. I yeah, yeah, graduate yeah. school, and it was the first work so, that I showed in, like, the, the 90s. Okay, so let's go back and let's talk about that just briefly. Like how you graduated from Yale, mm. right? Yeah, yeah. Nineteen ninety-eight. Ninety-eight, and you were making those photographs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a very specific time too, because it was like, you know, um, Gregory Crudson was my teacher, but it was also like Jeff Wall had had just made his work. Cindy Sherman, you know, she had been around for a while, but this idea of the film still that um you know the pictures generation idea that our reality is a mediated reality and that like the reason why we know men have landed on the moon is because we saw it on tv and that that is as much a reality to us as going outside and in fact when you go outside things seem pretty humdrum you can't know a lot from that and so what we know our image bank our image repertoire is based more on cinema than it is um, was that discussed in school then too or not a little bit a little bit or yeah and that Craig, that Craig Owens article um, came out about the pictures generation right around the time I was in school but that also was, it was a this influence. pervasive like feeling like where you were at at the time it was a permission 
it was it was a kind of like okay this was being talked about and all of a sudden it was like oh right I can go out in the world and I can photograph the world or I can make it what I want and by photographing it becomes true right so if I wanted to be a teenage runaway all I had to do was get like like a little bit of um, makeup and and costumes and props and I could make that fantasy yeah I remember one of those ones with the two kids in the back of the car yeah yeah no it was it was kind of an amazing but your photos like in that time frame though too were were they staged were they like well I had a really low production value like I didn't have professional actors or like you know I had I had no means to make um a real film so they were staged the way the lowest budget student film is staged where um but, but there was intention behind there was it. the intention of staging was behind it but it really devolved or unraveled into the reality of what was there it was a kind of cinema verite by default but i feel like you for me have gone like the complete opposite direction where like you're photographing yeah. the reality of the situation instead of the stage situation where the most important aspect of sort of what you're documenting is the reality of the this like subculture or like counterculture to like whatever is yeah no it's um there's a complete like if you would look at a work that i made in 1998 to something that i made now you wouldn't think it was made by the same artist it's a complete about face and a kind of um idea of what it is that photography does like in one sense, the beginning idea is that photography lies, which photography lies. And now it's more about like photography telling the truth, which photography always tells the truth. Right. So it's those two extremes. But it was like this very slow trajectory where I started out with a kind of hubris of a young artist being like, this is the world I want to be. I want like teenage girls to run away and gather together. In and the I can woods. make that. And I can make that I happen. I can totally make whatever I want. I can do whatever I want, whatever the fuck I want. It's going to happen right now, right here. And so I would do, I would do it. Um, but as the work progressed, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why I started letting go of the narrative aspect, but it is a kind of, I guess a maturity on one hand or a kind of like um, loss of illusions and a kind of um, crushing of dreams on the other hand. You think so? You know? I mean, I think it's both. I think it's both. Like, why do we mature? Because we realize that we can't do whatever the fuck we want or that there's like, but in that, there's a beautiful thing where you realize that what you're, what you want actually doesn't matter so much and nothing teaches you that as much as having a kid that there's like that's true i know that with children yeah as well. yeah but like yeah no, when I, I think of you but i don't think i've ever told you this when i think of you i think of you as one of the strongest female artists that i know in a way that like you're very you have a conviction about what you do and you just don't give a fuck you're doing what you want to do when you want to do it to produce the work that you need to do for yourself it doesn't matter what the outside is doing no, that's super, that's super nice to hear. But I don't, what I'm talking about is not like a gendered thing. It's not like something, I think it's, I think it has to do with a coming of age, whether you're male or It doesn't female. matter female or male. No, yeah, it's not. Period. It's just, it's a, it's a thing about being, the difference between being a young artist. Like um, my father used to talk about this. My father was a painter and he was talking about um, the heroic phase of a young artist where you like, 
feel like you know you just want to see what you're made of and you work as hard as you can and you're like most of the time spinning your wheels out but you have this kind of like sense of your own importance in the world and then he talks about that the rest of your life is about combing back over that terrain that you um that you mapped out in your heroic period with a kind of patience that you didn't have as a heroic young was your father an artist yeah yeah he was a painter i didn't know that Mm -hmm. yeah yeah yeah. no it's very um oedipal my whole i'm glad you corrected me on that by the (laughs) way too versus the well i know yeah it's nice Uh, (laughs) i'm glad you corrected me on the male female thing too because often we separate genders to describe attributes and weak and strong yeah like weak and strong and like it shouldn't be a question of like you are the strongest female artist that i know doing that thing it should be you are the strongest artist i know doing that thing Mm. which Mm. is probably a more correct phase but (laughs) no but i can't backtrack on what i already said (laughs) i think i i i appreciate you just kind of um but that's that's like i definitely i definitely identify as a feminist artist so it's it's no but it's like it is completely valid to have that conversation too like i i no but if you think about i'm very conscious of it for yourself when you were like a younger artist like you're still well, pretty much younger than me but if you think about like when you were much, 19 thank you <laughs> when you think about what you did when you were 19 and what you thought you were capable of doing and like now where you're like wow this wood grain is kind of groovy you know and you can you can dig on the kind of more subtle nuances well, dude, of frankly, it because you're not gonna, I could give a fuck yeah I could do what I want like it doesn't matter like I'm I'm less concerned about the attributes I'm attributing to the work that somebody else is going to see and more concerned about like where I'm at in the work. But that, that takes a kind of confidence that I think comes with age. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Because you don't, unless you've experienced it, you don't really know. But earlier we were talking about this and we were talking about women in the arts. Mm. I have asked many women to be on the show Mm -hmm. and come have conversations with me. And probably the same amount as I've asked, of of men to do it there's this thing where like a lot of the individuals that i've asked as far as being female have like sort of like not been as aggressively accepting of like doing it yeah and it's very frustrating to me no it doesn't surprise me at all yeah it's just that you don't know i don't know how to i can't do anything i can't force somebody into a situation where they want to actually come and participate but to have only guys wanting to participate in this way that is more pushing their work out there or like celebrating whatever they're doing is very, it's just, it's, that's not the range of the sort of conversation that's happening. Yeah. No, I mean, when, when we were talking about it before, it didn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me now. I mean, I, I, I think a voice is something that develops because it's practiced that you you learn how to talk because you talk like over the way and a over baby and over again. says it like totally makes sense like yeah, says yeah, a yeah. word and at first it's all mangled and like slowly they learn how to pronounce the word and to be able to put your thoughts into words to have that to have it at your fingertips and to then be able to uh, develop the thoughts into like fuller fleshed out concepts and to be able to talk is is something that happens throughout. Like, who is it that raises their hands in classrooms? Who talks at the family dinner? Who's the one who, like, when the police is pulling you over, explains why you're you're at this? I mean, not that anyone's getting pulled over by the police. I don't know why that popped into my head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, 
um, who who is it? Who's who's the one who who is given a voice and because or expected to speak? Yeah, expected to speak because traditionally women tend to hang back. They end up being the quieter ones. But but we, when we were talking about, it, I was bringing up the Virginia Woolf um, room of one's own, um, where she's talking about like who discovered America? A woman didn't discover America. Like, who invented gravity? A woman didn't invent gravity. Like, who made the cure for, like, penicillin? Who invented penicillin? It wasn't a woman. Like, that there's all of these ways and where the history of of what a woman has been allowed to do has made it so now there's a tradition that men are the one who achieve and women are the one that stay at home in 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 a room of one's own i don't know if you've ever read it but she talks about imagining if william shakespeare had an equally talented sister and what would his sister be what would have happened to her and basically she would have killed herself and gone crazy because she would never have been allowed to produce her plays that would never that would never have have happened and this whole the whole question of 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 women writers is like perhaps if you judge it by the criteria that men have made if you use their criteria perhaps you would say that women are not there aren't as many strong writers as there are men but but she's saying give us a hundred years where we get the same opportunities as men and you know and then let's talk and i think it's almost been a hundred years that was 1928 and everybody's equal yeah, so we're like in 14 more years we can have this conversation about like okay, what about women in fiction? Cuz the whole thing of a room of one's own is she's asked to give a talk about women in fiction and I can't remember who it was, but there was some like 19th century um critic who was like comparing women writers to dogs that dance. And it wasn't that they danced badly, but it was just hilarious that they would even try. Or so, something like that, you know. So there's like there's just so there's so much out there that keeps women from feeling like their voice is being heard, or you know, um, and it just doesn't it doesn't get developed. I mean, it's changing, and it's you know. You we were talking earlier too about um, you're listening to a panel discussion on top photographers and different, like one from Yale, one from. Do you remember this? Keep going. <laughs> you were like it had Gregory Crudson and it had uh, it had Jeff Wall and it had like uh, Shore Wait. and you were talking about oh oh this was the forum was it a forum okay yeah yeah but my comment on that was there were no female oh, photographers right, right. on that forum so right. explain the forum and what it was okay. briefly but I feel like the forum yeah it's it's the forum very, there's something else interesting a, about it yeah yeah. I was bringing it up for a totally a totally different reason. A totally different reason, but the forum it was one of MoMA has these forums on photographies, and this particular one was about arts education. Um, so they invited the heads of the departments of all of the, you know, top art schools. Um, so Nayland Blake, who heads up ICP Bard's MFA, was the moderator. James Welling was there to represent UCLA. Harry Dodge was there to represent CalArts. Um, Gregory Crudson was there to represent Yale. And Stephen Shore was there for a bard. And it was, yeah, all men. It was all dudes. Like, and that's all white dudes. All white guys. Although Nayland is half black. Oh, okay. But he was just the moderator. He wasn't like a head of department, although he is a head of department. Right, right, right. Um, 
Dude, so going from yeah. that, like it was interesting to note that there were no women on there, which yeah. I noted. But another interesting aspect of this conversation was, oh, why we were the education? About it. Yeah, no, it was a pretty, it was a pretty amazing panel discussion. You and know, because it, there's a lot of conversations now, particularly about how expensive our education is and how many people are going through this and whether or not they have any hope of like making, MFA programs. Yeah. MFA cr- programs are, are just churning out graduates with no possibility of, um, you know, any, any kind of economic future. Like it's almost, it's an irresponsible. And so it wasn't said directly, but the kind of elephant in the room was the question of whether graduate programs are in fact even necessary because they only started in the 70s and you can't say that artists are better today than they were in the 70s. Because Stephen Shore is not from an MFA program as well too, right? Well, Stephen Shore was the one person on that panel on the who panel. had not gone through an MFA program. But that that's what we were talking about. We were talking about this thing about choices. Yeah. Okay, now we're working backwards, but I think this is actually super this works. interesting. Um that Stephen Shore, I think he was like 16 when he had his first show or his first work at, at MoMA. What, um, really? Yeah, he, he was, was really young. So young. And he was hanging out at the factory and photographing at the factory. But he said in this panel discussion that he felt like his education as an artist was to be in close proximity to another artist in order that he could watch the decisions and the choices that an artist made, that what for him and our education was, was to understand that there were X, Y, and Z things that could be done to a certain material or medium or whatever. And that if you watch an artist decide, you can understand the trajectory and why those decisions make other decisions possible. Which reminds me actually of another kind of really beautiful quote from Nayland Blake, who I teach with, who was on. He didn't talk about this at the panel discussion, but now that I brought his name into the room, he has this kind of beautiful thing that he says about babies, about why people love babies. Everyone loves a baby because a baby hasn't made any decisions yet. Like you can't know if that baby is going to be gay or straight. Um, a Republican or a Democrat. You can't know if that baby is going to be like rough trade or like a, a cerebral intellectual. They have, they could be anything. So that way there's nothing to alienate anyone. They're from a blank that baby. canvas. Yeah. They, and so as a blank canvas, you can project whatever you want that baby to be. And they it's just a beautiful like kind of baby. Say, yeah. <laughs> or whatever. They're That's like a happy. Great, no, it's a total it's a, true. And the thing about, the reason why artists are not babies is because they have to make decisions. And every time you make a decision, you close the door and alienate a huge group of people. Like once you decide that you're like left wing as opposed to right wing, then the right wing no, no longer is going to support you. Yeah. You know, like so all of those decisions. But the only way to be articulate about what you're communicating as an artist is to close doors and make decisions and to to to. To you make have to. choices. You, you have, have to. to. Yeah. And so to, so anyway, what Stephen Shore was saying was to watch someone make choices, that all you can do is to understand why someone makes the choices that they made. So you can make your own choices, not to make the same choices that they made, but to know why they made the choice. Well, it helps, it helps you navigate, right? Yeah. So it helps you sort of figure out in your own world, like where you're going to go left or go right. But the reason why we were talking about this or the reason why I had thought about it before 
was because I think it's so the idea of the interview is, is such an interesting... Well, we were talking about the podcast and yeah. why I started doing it. Yeah. And yeah. It, for me, it was an extension of my practice. Our history. Yeah. So we first met, um, you were giving a lecture at... Uh, where ICP. Were you? ICP, right? Yeah. And I went with... I met a friend there, but I was with Barney Kulak, who is an amazing photographer in New York. And he introduced me to you. Yeah. We were driving around in his little MG. And I, I remember saying, I, I had vaguely known that you drove around the country in your van. Yeah. And I offered, I said, if you're in LA anytime, just like, let me know. And you can totally camp out in the backyard. <laughs> and I got a, And Barney, Barney wrote me and he goes, I remember this is like a few months after and he's like, Hey, Justine just wrote me. And she was like, um, was that for real? <laughs> Did you really mean that? And it's like, yeah, yeah, totally. So you like wrote me and you came out and you parked the van yeah. and you know, it was amazing. <laughs> like so two you, months later. You here. did. It was two months later. Like it was like, so like in Careful the back. what you say. I know, I know. But this one was good because I'm, I feel very fortunate to be friends with you now. No, like me too. Me too. It's nice, right? Yeah. Like after it's been a really like honest and great friendship, but like you parked the van in the backyard and my little kids came out and like saw your van. And yeah. It was like totally fantastic. And you were here for like three days, I think or something. Yeah. You, I just had the show in New York like yeah. recently and yeah. you had just flown back into the country. You were like gone for a while and uh, Barney had thrown a dinner for me. Yeah. And he's really sweet. And you came like directly from the airport over yeah. to the dinner. And that meant a lot to me. Yeah. I don't, I, I think I told you at the time, but like it was very generous and very sweet. So thank you very much for doing that. I feel like I have really super deep, crazy conversations with you. And so when you talk about this interview process being part of your practice, well, with it's, you, it's clearly, we, it seems like that's the way you navigate the world is this kind of deep questioning. Um, and I'm like looking around your studio and like the questioning goes from like another fellow artist and like what the decisions they made. But like you're also questioning like like what these weird vernacular objects are, candlestick, pepper mill, dildo. <laughs> I don't know what they are. <laughs> um but there is a kind of like what it what it means to like pull pull something apart to to know what it's made of. Like well, that's, that's what the conversations are too, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. That's yeah, I it's mean. like I need. We sat in a bar for the last like hour and a half before we actually did the interview, and just had, like sat and had conversations about like everything too. Yeah. And it's really nice with you too. I, I think that uh, we have very personal conversations. You genuinely like give a shit about what's going on in my life and want to make sure that I'm okay, which is really, it's yeah. a rarity. It's really nice. So it's sweet. Yeah. I want to stop hugging it out for a moment. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 yeah. Yeah. Gross. Totally. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> fuck that. Like stop talking about that. Um, Can we, so we've talked about the road trips. Yeah. You want to talk about indexicality? I do want to talk about indexicality because I have no clue. So I am completely, I'm surrounded by photographers all the time and yeah. I have no, you, I will say this, male, female, I don't give a shit. Yeah, yeah. You were the most interesting photographer that I know. <laughs> you were like the, if somebody yeah. said, what type of art does she make? I would never guess photography yeah. because photographers are so stuck in 
a rut of having these very analytical conversations about the medium that they actually work in. Mm. Mm. You, uh, it's, it's been in crisis for a long time. I feel like it's been in crisis since, I mean, that's, we were talking about Martha Rossler earlier, but there was an essay that she wrote, I guess it was the early 80s, called um, In and Around Photography, um, where she really criticized uh, a documentary practice that, um, this is where the quote comes from, that she talks about photography re-victimizing re the victim. In what does that words, mean? What do you mean? If if someone is like cast out by society, has been othered by society, um, the act of photographing them is another way of othering them further. Right. Like I'm going to document the fact that you're a reject. Yeah. Yeah. Here yeah. and but we'll put Let it out for the world to see for the next hundred yeah. years. Right. Yeah. 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 You're a freak. And you're a here's freak, this picture to show you what a freak it's you are. So fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. No. So it was like. I mean, it was a very important thing to say, but it really, it really threw photography into a kind of a crisis of what it was. Like, I don't think any other medium questions its own. I mean, I, even before Martha Rossler, I mean, just like Baudelaire and like Stieglitz and everyone, whether or not it, first of all, it was an art form. And then with Martha Rossler, it was like, well, who gives you permission to make this photograph of the person? Like, what right do you have of this person's image to the crisis of like digital photography? And like, you know, what? And that's like the question of indexicality and this whole the whole question around whether or not photography could do what modern art said it was doing, which was to be self-reflexive of its own material. So explain support. indexicality. What's the deal with indexicality? It's a word that comes up yeah, frequently for photographers. So what is it? It's, it's, it gets played out so much. I mean, it's like a, it's just, it's a, it's a quick word that people can reference. Yeah. I mean, I guess what indexicality is, is the idea. I mean, I feel like the most beautiful description of indexicality was when Susan Sontag talked about um, that the light from that that looking at the a photograph was like like if you're looking at a photograph of a loved one it was like looking at the delayed light from a star that the starlight went all the way when you're looking up at the at the night sky you're looking at the past of what those stars were, but that the light that's coming from your eye to your hitting your eyes is coming out of the star. So when you're looking at a analog, not a digital, but an analog photograph, what you're looking at is that the light hit the face of the loved one and then burnt into the film. And then that same burning of the film then hits your own eyes. So there's this kind of direct trace. So why doesn't digital work the same way? Um, it's the same problem with like going from an LP to uh, a, a... The a degradation in quality of like the image? It's not a degradation of quality, but what, when something goes digital, it no longer is about the, the analog imprint of something. It's not a direct trace, a direct mark when... Um, it's just that the, the digital is like zeros and ones. Yeah. So it's a translation and not a An actual direct, representation. And not a... Not a, a direct a, representation through... Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not printed. It's not a direct print. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, so it's not, it's not pressed in by the face of onto the light, into so, this light-sensitive film. Does that, did I make it? No, that, that, that totally made, I think that makes sense. But um, <laughs> so if you're dealing with the digital, can you have an... A conversation about indexical or like 
that that conversation can it be a well, part I guess of what like what makes what it's about value like what why is a photograph valuable it's not valuable because like someone's blood sweat and tears went into it although certainly blood sweat and tears go into a photograph the idea of um painting for instance where you see the kind of gesture the mark the mark of the, there's of no, the genius artist yeah, there's onto no, the surface there's no opportunity to show the mark yeah there's no opportunity to show the mark so all all that a photograph can say is that i was there right so once you turn it into a digital you can't really even say i was there that whole idea that i was there because it could be manipulated too well it could be manipulated but because the way the image is made is not made because of i was there it was made by um, digital circuits saying on off on off on off you know it's 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 it seems like an insignificant shift well, because, but it's because there's so little that photography but this is a, okay so but like what's the difference between the digital signal saying on off on off between somebody hitting a button and the button like mechanically saying on off yeah on yeah. off on off yeah no i guess there's re there's really no difference it's a big lot of hubbub over nothing but it's the difference between... But this is a conversation like, that goes on in um, photography all the time. No, but imagine, imagine if your, your child had died, right? And all you have of your child are these two different versions of your child. Which one would you want? One of the, one of the versions, your kid's face had been, had just rubbed into face paint and had, had put its face against a piece of paper so you could actually see the touch of your kid's face against a piece of paper. And then the other version was like um, a drawing that someone had made of your kid's face. Like yeah. you would want the thing that actually touched your kid's face, right? That the, the value imbued in photographs is the fact that it is a direct access or a promise of access to something, a longing that we want to have well, this object of desire. But I would argue that... <laughs> It's so incremental and or indiscernible yeah. that like who who can tell? Except I mean the photographer could tell maybe, right? I mean these days it's hard to tell whether I mean I don't think it really matters whether it's a, it's analog or digital, but that indexical trace That is what last, it is. was the last moment of like the reason why photography is valuable is to say it was there. Wait, That's but, all wait it could have. I have no idea. Do you shoot Digitally or do you shoot analog? I shoot analog, but just lately I've started shooting digitally. And it wasn't um, because I was like... What do you shoot with? Um, a 4x5. Super old-fashioned. I, You knew that I used to shoot with a 4x5 all the I time, think, too. I think we yeah, talked we had this conversation. That, yeah. So I know a little bit about 4x5 and that type of thing, but like I was never... I was shooting 4x5 for a while... And I was doing a ton of photography. I'd go out on site and I'd shoot with a 4x5. I'd shoot with a 35mm. I'd shoot with a medium format. I'd do all of them at once. Then I came back and I was starting to like produce these things. And I bought like, I built a dark room and I was like producing all this. I mean, it was like serious about it. I bought like an Omega to like Omega larger to do all the dark room mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, then I met Lucas Blaylock. Yeah. And I realized that I was not a photographer. Lucas was a photographer. And that his. What made you. No, Be the difference. What was the difference? Because my, his desires to figure out where he was in that medium were different than what my desires were. What were? What? What do you mean? I was dealing with everything on the surface, so like for me, it wasn't necessarily about figuring out what photography meant to like produce something. And I guess it doesn't have to be if you're producing the pieces. 
I had the fallback of sculpture and painting at the time too. And like what I realized what, and what it actually did was solidify me. Like I stopped painting and I stopped doing photography and I solely made sculpture for probably mm. about six or seven years. Mm. And it was this moment where I realized that if I really wanted to be good at something, I needed to focus my attention on it and really figure out why I was making it and the yeah. reason, like all those things. Yeah. So it turned totally. me back in onto myself to realize like, if I'm going to really turn in and look at like why I'm making these works, I need to figure out what medium I want to do it with first. And it was sculpture for me and it wasn't photography. So I gave up doing all photography. There's this, um, I, I, it's from Moira Davey had, um, written this book that was also a movie called my saints. And she writes a lot in it, mostly exclusively about Jean Genet. Um, and she talks about how when he was in prison and he, that was when he started writing like Our Lady of the Flowers and all of these very like homoerotic like novels that he had written, but that he had a postcard that he was writing to someone from prison. And he realized he, he realized in writing the postcard that what he really wanted to write about was the quality of the paper that he was writing about. And that the quality of the paper reminded him of snow. And, you know, he, he just wanted to talk about yeah. the material itself. And I think it's that is exactly what you're talking about this kind of interest not in the what it is that you want to say but like the, the the thing itself yeah i mean it took me a long time to figure out that was okay to do to, too you know mm. what i mean you don't realize yeah yeah and since then i've gone I, I do painting now like i don't mind doing painting and photography i do too i wouldn't be opposed to like doing photography it's just not something that i need to do at the moment but like figuring out where your boundaries are, how you have to deal with the things that you're looking at in your own practice. Or mm. Like it's a hard, have you ever wanted to make sculpture or anything? There, there's something, there's something so appealing about, about sculpture. I've never, I, I've never made sculptures, but the idea of there's a, there's a similarity of what photographs do and what sculptures do, which is about the arrangement of facts, you know? I, I like agree. You can't, totally. Yeah. So it's, I feel like there's a kind of a direct link. I don't think it's. Painting, I don't know? think it's a small coincidence that all of my friends are photographers. Yeah. Because we speak the same language yeah. in a weird way. Yeah. Although I don't understand the academic language of photography. No, but you do. The thing about Lucas Blaylock, um, just now when you were talking about why you realized what he was doing, the the thing that was so absolutely shocking and the kind of permission that he gave to other photographers was to break open a kind of continuity of surface, you know, that if you're making a photograph, it means that space has to be kind of consistently seen, that there's a certain kind of perspective that's from this kind of lens-based view. No, in his, it's just like a total mess, He'll right? fuck with you. He'll like... fuck with you so badly. If we didn't have an expectation of indexicality, the way he fucks with you wouldn't matter. If he was making paintings and then there's like a strawberry repeated over and over but and he, over but again. But that's just the thing. They act more like paintings than they do photographs in a way that we have subjected photography to yeah. sort of the structure, right? But he absolutely uses the, the lexicon of photography, not just simply the description of photography, but a type of photography um, that a, a type of image making that is so built into um, a very particular 1950s studio practice. Well, and we, he still shoots on medium format. Large or format. Or large format. Yeah, yeah. yeah he shoots, yeah. shoots on large format and develops all of them and then brings yeah. them in. Like, it's... 
So it's like in a way the the the, the base point of his pictures are such a kind of almost retro idea of a photograph and then he then and then he messes with with that idea of like what a 1950s studio still life photograph would be and bring pushing it into i mean not all of them the one I, the no, one that you yeah, have yeah, is yeah. like a i think about like when i was at that uh, lecture that you gave mm. somebody asked you if you felt like changing your practice based on like new photographers mm. And I think they brought up Lucas and they brought up like other other artists as well yeah. too. Yeah. And it seemed like such a strange question to me. What did I say? I, I think the roundabout was no. <laughs> <laughs> like fuck no. Like I'm not like because your work seems so you. Do you, you know what I mean? Like it's a very personal like I I, I think I probably know what I say cuz it's not a Okay, fair so tell question. me what you, I mean, my You, you my have that point, regularly? Yeah, it's a very, it's a very normal Are you serious? Question. Really? Yeah, it's an anxiety that every artist has. Like, if somebody else comes out with a new thing, or you feel like you need to do the new thing, or yeah, what? yeah, yeah, oh, that no you shit. need to do the like for I my students have that problem. Like, you know, okay, this is the trendy kind of photography. I better make that so that when I get out, what I'm like, am I going to be hot? Like somebody in the marketplace will be hip. Okay, so tell me what you said. I think what I what my like it's like a weird cliche that I just. Like, I'm like an old lady that just, like, repeats the same thing. But um, it's this idea that a broken <laughs> clock is right twice a day. And that if you try to make the thing that you think is going to be hip, you're already... You're already too late. You're already too late. Yeah, you're and already, that, like, behind the curve. I mean, what what hipness is, is to understand what the future is going to be. And you can't ever To know. do the thing that's completely different. Yeah. And not try to do it differently either i think that's one of the things we run into as artists as well too is that if we drastically try to adjust the practice in a way that we think is going to be new and sort of crazy that's not what people are looking they're looking for an honest answer well the thing about it is that you just be like chasing your tail the whole time the only thing that you can do is to be engaged in your own process of making and thinking and making and thinking so that to be you build self-reflective your own trajectory so that when someone looks at your work and especially this is a thing with photography everyone can make one great picture but you have to look at a body of work as almost like a chapter by chapter building into like a an like epic novel or something that yeah, it's something yeah, yeah. that builds up through time and that it's not about jumping around tracing chasing a kind of trend but like how the work itself creates its own rootedness and richness that draws from its own and, and reaches into the new from its own experience with its own material and subjects. And yeah, yeah it totally makes sense. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's tricky for students, I think, to know what. Well, let's do. talk about like just quickly, like briefly, if you want. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're a teacher. Yeah. Yeah. You supplement your income. Yeah by teaching because art doesn't sell all the time not very not well. at all right <laughs> not at all yeah yeah no it's so what is talk it about teaching yeah i want to well is that a is that a drain no, no no i have a lot to say about it well yeah tell me um i mean i started teaching i i had like a, a 10 year span where you know, hand to mouth in a really struggling way i made enough money selling my work that i could support myself and what's interesting about making art is, like I was saying about the broken clock, there's a kind of 
you have your own trajectory of making your work and the art world has its own kind of dialogue about what contemporary art is and that there are these crossover moments where it's like a payday moment, but that it doesn't happen for very rare that your trajectory in the art world it's the dialogue exact same thing. Is it parallel. just doesn't fucking happen. It doesn't happen. So it's not like if you were a plumber and you were really good at changing pipes, you would get more and more clients. And you'd have and this job have, forever in a yeah, fucking yeah. day. And it would probably you'd probably do better and better and things would be great. But with the art world, you have a, a period of time where you do well and then you know, and then there's a period where no one is buying your work and you still have to pay rent and you still have to, you know, do all of the other things that cost money. So so yeah, so the like artists need day jobs. I don't think that there is any harm of that, except for the part where it's like, how does society value artists? And it's really clear with musicians, for instance, where it's like no one wants to pay ninety nine cents on iTunes for um, an artist song, although they will pay six dollars for a cappuccino. But ninety nine cents no, for yeah. <laughs> for an artist song. No, it's it's. Um, it's a really there's a there's a there's a kind of questionable placement of value. So with teaching, I do have um, and we were talking before about the forum. I do have a, a concern about how I am participating in in what way um, the hopes of like what it means for someone to spend their college, whatever money they have to go to college because to you get think they're, they're going to get out and just struggle or what? I mean, on one hand, there's this whole idea with um, arts education that it's, yeah, there's it's there's no job, so why study it? But there's a beautiful book that Marilyn Robinson wrote called I Read Books as a Child, where she's talking about, um, you would think we had lost the Cold War and that, that we have to just go to school to make wedgets and that, like, you know, we're supposed to go to school to learn how to make our wedget and get out of school and make our wedget so that we can, like, ben- then be productive members of a economic society. Um, and she said that the reason why she's talking about a liberal arts degree, but any arts degree, the reason why you do that is to understand more, um, to have a more nuanced appreciation of the possibilities and the richnesses of life. And so it's not necessarily, you don't go to school to then go and use that education in a kind of quantifiable way of how to then make, turn it around to make money. Yeah, yeah, It doesn't, you're not doing that to begin with. Like, there's no point. Yeah. So on on one hand, I'm like, yes, it's true. Like, I feel like it's a beautiful thing to study art, whether you end up um, supporting yourself with the thing exactly that, it's not a trade school, although maybe it is. I don't know. Anyway, but um, <laughs> teaching art has changed how I make art and has when, it, when I started this with this whole essay that I had written about um, getting off of the road and, and what this kind of ideological shift Wait, that I the essay that I read. So that's an essay, not a poem. Oh, you thought it was a poem? It's I did whatever. think it was a poem. I like I, oh. Yeah, it was very... It's a prose poem then. Well, it could feel, yeah, it felt like uh, I totally thought it was a poem. I didn't oh. think it was an essay. Oh. This um, shift in ideology, I think, is, has a lot to do. And when I talk about going from the heroic stage to kind of more combing over stage has to do with teaching because I have to really think about what it is that I know that I, I feel like I can pass down to someone else and what it is. Um, that's worth knowing about art making and I've I, I haven't told you this but I've brought you up to multiple people just in passing 
No, I've talked about something or I've been like, oh, Justine did such and such or whatever else. And you have come up in conversation as to, to being like people's favorite photographer or somebody they look up to as an inspiration Aww. on multiple occasions. Aww. That's sweet. It's really cool. <laughs> I feel a little uh, naive because I didn't know when I met you that you had such an influence on like a group of people coming up and sort of understanding photography or understanding art in general that it was it was a real thing so like hmm. the idea of you teaching and well I mean I feel like I feel like what happens with my teaching is more of um I feel like I learn more from my students than I possibly pass on well you're so humble um, but no, no, no. But it's it's really it's really about a dialogue where it's um, where I present what I know and they present what I, they know, and it becomes this kind of dialectical thing where we both come up with something new at the end. It's not simply that I'm like. Yeah. Also, by the them. way, your boundaries are totally fucked. Like you have the. I have really bad boundaries. You have horrible boundaries. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, yeah. no, I have like I had my students like sleeping at my house. Uh, yeah, your your like, boundaries are fucked up. You gotta get this shit fixed. No, <laughs> but I, it was it's gotten yeah, it's gotten better. Um, I just when I first started teaching, I didn't really understand that I wasn't a student. Like, you're I just, you're I such a fucking hippie. <laughs> it's like crazy. <laughs> it's like. It's really, really, really fantastic. I, I super love my students. I just think that they're... I can't... I, I imagine you're such a fantastic teacher. But it's like a really intimate relationship. It's kind of like... I don't know. I have a really intimate relationship with my kid. But like, I have to fight with him to do my their homework. And it's not like I don't have to fight with my students to do their homework. But they're like kind of like into it they want they want to be in school and it's yeah like, but your kids had to deal with you for how many how old is he uh, 11 but i have to what the person i'm meeting is one of my ex-students who is um, uh, we're we by the way we're done okay good 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 do you yeah, think you don't got say it? good <laughs> oh no thank you for i just have to go that's why i said good no but we're totally so, good so much thank you for coming on the show and we'll talk to you shortly 